Hello and welcome to Lake Forest on Topic. I'm your host, Tim Finnegan. On this podcast, we hope to give the residents of Lake Forest information and insight into the people, places, and actions that shape the city. Today, I'm talking with Carol Summerfield. Carol became the Executive Director of the History Center of Lake Forest Lake Bluff in 2018. Carol has extensive experience in marketing, operations, and project management, working with both private sector businesses and public institutions. She has served on the board of several not-for-profit organizations, including the Museum of Broadcast Communications, the Public Narrative, and Girls in the Game. Carol served in the Peace Corps in Central in the Central African Republic and is a graduate of Northwestern University. Carol, welcome to Lake Forest on Topic. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you became the executive director of the History Center uh, nearly five years ago. What drew you to that position? So I had spent um, nearly two decades working in marketing and advertising. And um, when I turned 50, you know, the company I was with handed me a very large please go away check because I no longer was of the age demographic they wanted. And they took my very large go away check and I started my own company. And I thought, where would the world benefit the most from the things I'd learned working with global marketing and advertising companies? And I thought nonprofit and specifically museums, because museums were really struggling to make the transition from sort of being just um, hard displays of objects into the digital world. And I thought, this is a chance for me to take what I know and give it to people who would never be able to afford a Leo Burnett kind of company, mm-hmm. and helping them make that transition into what I referred to always as the age of Google. And so... I wanted to help museums remain relevant and, uh, and help them understand that your job is not to be encyclopedic in a story, but it is to demonstrate why history is interesting or why art is interesting or whatever it is you're working on as a topic and how do you engage the public in a way that makes them want to learn more. And so that's where it started. And for like seven years, I worked with museums around the country and with other sort of nonprofits that were focused in communication to help improve the way they use digital technology in delivering their messages. And then in 2017, I got approached by a couple members of the board to come up and design the new museum for the History Center as they transitioned from being the historical society into this new institution with an actual living, breathing museum space. So can you give us a little history of the History Center? How how did it start? So in 1972... There were a group of um, local residents who had made the decision that sort of archiving and holding Lake Forest and Lake Bluff history was really important. And it was a wave that had begun sort of across the country, really beginning in, in early 1970 through the bicentennial. This idea that we were now old enough to celebrate our history and to start archiving it. There was also another really interesting transition in Lake Forest specifically where many of the older generation, although they lived here, they saw themselves as Chicagoans, but their children didn't. Their children saw themselves as Lake Foresters. This is where they'd gone to school. This is where they lived. This is for a lot of them where they worked. And so there was this opportunity for this young group when they came into adulthood to say, well, it's time for us to start archiving our own history, and that's how it began. Mm-hmm. Is it? Is it? You said a, um, it became a trend in the seventies, leading up to the bicentennial. Is it common for you know we're about 
twenty thousand between Lake Forest and Lake Bluff. Is it common for a, a, a city that size to have uh, a local history museum? It, it is common where I think Lake Forest has really varied is that, you know, if you've ever ventured in this any small town, they'll have the little historical society where you walk Usually in. at the library. Exactly, <laughs> or at some storefront that nobody yeah. needed anymore. Yeah. And I always refer to that as like Uncle Al's attic where you walk in, it's 25 news clippings and a dusty top hat. And you're like, all right, I saw it. I never <laughs> have to come back. And for a lot of them, they became sort of pet projects of three or four individuals within a community. And so they survived as long as those individuals survived, but no one wanted to pick up that mantle. And so part of the reason I took this job at the museum is because one and two room museums are really threatened species of museum in America because relevance is really hard and bringing people back is really hard. And so how do you do that in a small footprint of a museum? How do you create a conversation that's engaging the, an audience over and over and over again versus a one and done walkthrough? And so that was one of the things I looked at. So what you're seeing along the North Shore is you know, Glencoe is entirely run by volunteers. Highwood, we believe, is closed. Highland Parks is in the middle of all sorts of fraught issues around where are they going to be, what are they going to do, how are they going to be serviced by staff or by volunteers. We're one of the few communities that actually has a multi-staff, paid salary staff um, running an institution in, um, in a museum that's actually remaining vibrant with the community. And that's, I think, rare and be unfortunately becoming rarer. Yeah. So as you mentioned, uh, you came on board to help moving to the new location, which they, the center moved to in 2018. How, how has the new space allowed you to be more success, successful in, in the museum's mission? Um, in a million ways, not the least of which is it's an entirely accessible building. So if I use a mobility device, if I use a wheelchair, if I use a walker, if I use a cane, you can get into our building from the parking lot. There's no stair to navigate. The space is entirely wide open. And the old church was a sort of perfect location for us because you have the large main room that became the permanent exhibit. And when we designed that space, we did it specifically so that it would be a multi-purpose room. So you've got the exhibitry on the wall and um, six touch screens that allow people to explore almost 400 stories at this point. And that you know number will continue to grow. But we can drop a screen, we can seat 100 people in their theater style, we can seat, you know, 80 people in there for um, meals and gatherings, we can do, you know, classroom style um, structures within the space. So it gave us flexibility to have a permanent exhibit, but also have a lecture hall all in the same space. And then off of the main space, we have a smaller special exhibit room where we design two to three exhibits a year that explore in more depth some aspect of Lake Forest and Lake Bluff history. So what, what are some of the permanent exhibits at the center? So the center is structured around six main topics, and they all focus on the idea of how does community grow, how does it build, how does it survive, and then how does it thrive. And so we start with getting here. Why here? You know, the story that we, you know, used to tell is, and I never remember the number, it's 8, 12, whatever, Presbyterians get off a train and go, this looks good. <laughs> and my first question is, why is there a train here? And so when you actually start looking at why here, we go all the way back to the Laurentide ice sheet and the, the way that the ice melts and creates the ridge lines and the ravines. 
when you actually look at why here. Like it really is about sort of the geology of the land. And then you get into who are the first settlers? Why do they come? And then we go all the way through the newcomers category, talks about who is here, why, and when. And then we have making it home. What are the things that this community has done over the decades to create a space that is livable and desirable? And how has that changed over time? And then there is um, one that we're expanding now into the outdoor gardens area called um, Nature by Design. So you have all these folks who are coming up because they love the green space of Lake Forest. So they're coming out of massively urbanized Chicago. Smog, pollution, density, all of those things where you have to hike to see a tree. And they don't want to lose that in Lake Forest. So that sort of conservation preservation narrative is here from pretty much the beginning of Lake Forest. And it shows in the way the land is maintained today. And so we're going to take our um, acre and a half of grounds um, that surround the building and actually tell the story of landscape design over time and how that has been influenced by Lake Forest nationally. Because again, if you're an Armour or a Swift or a McCormick, your voice mattered. And so when you hire a Jens Jensen, you have an opinion that weighs in on how Jensen, who is a famous landscape mm -hmm. architect, worked and then how he evolves as a designer and how that influences the nation. So that sort of threading of the narrative from Lake Forest out is a really important part of what we talk about. And one of the other categories we have is called Changing the World, which talks about Lake Foresters and Lake Bluff residents and how they individually change the way America functions. So you have, you have uh, historians on staff that basically do the research and, and create the projects and create the exhibits. We have a staff of five. My deputy director, Lori Stein, is our head of curation, and she is the most knowledgeable of Lake Forest and Lake Bluff history. She is a walking encyclopedia of these stories and how to link them together. We have a registrar who supports her and helps both with the archives and then with the storytelling. And then we pull in topic experts depending on the topic that we're covering. So when we were working on the current exhibit, which is on the history of African Americans in Lake Forest, we partnered with Lake Forest College and uh, uh, Dr. Co Courtney Joseph, who is the head of the African American Studies program at Lake Forest College, to help us develop that um, um, special exhibit display and then enhance our permanent exhibit to make sure that we're telling the breadth of stories that are available to us in Lake Forest. You mentioned, um, in addition to the exhibits, you have archives. So what's, what is in those archives and who uses them and for what purpose? So it's one of the little known sort of secrets of the museum. So we move, I mean, this year we expect to move between four and 5,000 people through the exhibit hall, either through lectures or coming in to see the exhibit. We're moving more than 2,000 people through the archives for hmm. research. And they will come in for a lot of different reasons. The biggest are I'm researching my home or I'm researching my family. The other, though, is I'm researching a book on suburbanization or women's studies or, you know, philanthropy in America or whatever those topics are, but they come in and they work with us through our materials that we've collected. We have about 30,000 items in the archives, much of which is sort of paper documentation. So it'll be old home sales and we have a ton of blueprints and maps that talk about sort of the history of the area. 
Um, we have um, landscape design sketches. We have a lot of primary documents. Um, if it's, you know, uh, personal reminiscences, letters, correspondence. We have a lot of old, old business files. The Lake Forest League of Women Voters has donated all of their historical materials to us. So if you want to look at, you know, the history of women's um, voting rights in the region, we're a great resource. So we're open to the public to come in. There's no charge to use the archive. You set an appointment and we set you up with a carol and you sit at that carol with the materials for as long as you want to work. Most people are in there and out in a day. But we've had people who use a carol for up to a year researching a book. And it's all majority paper still? Yes. We're, our goal is to digitize as much as we can to make sure that we have a lot of... Um, sort of long distance access, we become, as the more digital we become, the more aware we become of how broad our audience is. So when we moved to Zoom programming during COVID, we had people from Europe and California mm. attending our lectures. Yeah. So they're everywhere. People are really interested in Lake Forest history. Oh, that's cool. Um, you know, you've said that the History Center is not just you know, backwards looking, that you want people to come in and tell their stories. What do you hope to understand or document from inviting people in and asking to share their experiences? So one of the um, biggest challenges that uh, History Museum faces in any form is that, you know, the archives of old are built around letters, diaries, newspapers, correspondences, paper files. All, th all things we're getting rid of all in All things hurry. we are getting rid of. And so, you know, when we look at in 50 years, what will people want to know and how will we be able to provide that narrative? We realize it is through digital recordings, oral histories, you know, just video recordings of people because they're not writing anymore and helping to sort of maintain the story of who we are right now is really important for historians of the future. Yeah, I would imagine. As, there's, there's so much stuff. How much of it is really historical and how much of it is just taking up space? Well, and the other thing is that when you ask somebody from the outside, what do you think the History Center is going to care about? The things that they presume are really different than what we actually care about. We want to know what summer camp was like. <laughs> we want to know what your daily sort of cooking routine was because no one's documenting that. And so 50 years from now, when somebody wants to recreate daily life of 2023, what, what can they pull together? And so things that people think of as boring or uninteresting or just, you know, like, ah, it's not important are actually really important to sociological study. And that's some of the stuff we want to collect. And that's where photographs are really handy, you know, like what your Christmas celebration looks like. Hmm. Great. Because no one's really publishing those pictures anymore. Life magazine is gone. You've also said people feel a strong attachment to place. And how, how do you think the museum helps create that sense of community in Lake Forest and Lake Bluff? Well, besides bringing together people of like interest, where they get a chance to talk to each other and they see they're not alone in their interest in miniature rooms or trains or whatever that topic is, it also helps people understand the depth of the community that they're in, that 
what I like to say is we move from nostalgia into real knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, everybody can sort of celebrate, yeah, I love my high school, but how was it different? How did it actually transform you? To make people sort of reflect on those questions, I think is really important. And again, with the African-American exhibit, so few people understand that this was an integrated community beginning in 1861, that the schools were integrated, that the ability for black families migrating up from the South right after um, liberation were able to own their own businesses, that those businesses were um, patronized by both um, black community and white community that allowed them to become successful. Those stories are stories to celebrate. Those are things where you can actually look back and realize that the sort of foundational narrative around Lake Forest was built around this idea of equality for all. Who are most of the people that do come by the, the center? It varies from, um, depending on which exhibit that we have going on. So we did the Art of the Miniature Room based on Narcissa Thorne's um, rooms that she has at the Art Institute. She was a Lake Forester, and she spent 50 years basically hiring people to build miniature rooms, and then she, as a hobbyist, would um, build little ones on her own. We ended up getting a ton of press on that. We had coverage on the local news stations, and we had people coming from 100 miles away to come see that exhibit because they're really interested in the art of the miniature. And whenever we design an exhibit, we always think, all right, how do I tell this story differently? So what, how is this different than what the Art Institute does? And what the Art Institute has is a series of miniature rooms designed around period design, right? So it is the New England you know, sitting room of 1850. I personally don't care. But I want to know how you made that tiny little tapestry and hung it on the wall. Like, my God, how are people actually doing this? And so what we did was something the Art Institute doesn't do, which is talk about the mechanics and the craftsmanship that goes into sure. this. And so we actually had two rooms that were in the process of being made, one an old one from Narcissa and then one a new one from a family that has just been traditionally miniature room makers. And you ask, how is that a job? Because each one sells for about a hundred to hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So you really only need to move one a year to you know stay yeah. in business. Wow. And so that was a really unique audience, really interested in craftsmanship or artistry or miniatures or whatever their you know their connection was to that. Um, for the sociological ones, it's people who are really interested in understanding community history. Um, we're ha our upcoming exhibit will actually be on the local focus of what two degrees of difference means for Lake Forest and Lake Bluff. So we look at the difference between the ice sheet to today, which is about four degrees centigrade, and then here to 2050. So what will we lose? What will we gain? What happens to the um, water levels? But a big focus is how does lake forest life change as the you know, earth continues to warm? And we're partnering with lake forest college students and University of Chicago students to help research and tell these stories. So it's giving students a chance to learn how to communicate complex ideas at a, at a simple level to the public. What are some of the um, marketing programs that you're implementing to try and get people to know more about the center and get more people through it. So during COVID, we ramped up our social media tremendously. And that 
did a ton for pulling in a new audience. You know, our first year we had about 1,500 people come through the museum. And as I like to say, I clear the bar of low expectations with everyone who walks in the door because they're expecting Uncle Al's attic sure. and the you know, dusty top hat. And they walk in, they're like, oh, this is actually nice, they say with surprise. And just getting people to experience it allows people to then go um, tell others and bring them in. So it's been a very organic growth. But during COVID, when we were closed and we couldn't rely on that, we just started firing off like daily moments in history, helping people understand different topics. And that really brought a whole new audience in when we opened our doors again 18 months later. Speaking of COVID, the museum has a program called Facing School 2020, where you invited teachers, parents, students to share how they navigated learning during the pandemic. What led you to create this project and what have you learned from all these submissions? So again, one of the things when you think about this idea of 50 years from now, what will people want to know? One of the things that we realized is when you look at the press and how the press covered sort of the COVID shutdown, they were telling big stories, although the gro empty grocery stores, everybody's got a document around that. But how did we live our day-to-day -day lives wasn't getting documented. And so we wanted a way to make sure that we were capturing all that so that things that you might forget, the you know uh, sidewalk um, birthday parades or the sidewalk art decoration, all of those things were really important for us to document. Sure. So the school had come to us and they said, you know, we want a space where everyone can talk about what they're doing to change it so that we can archive and keep this for posterity. And so we came up with this idea of having the sort of student voice, teacher voice, parent voice about what their fears were, how they were experiencing it, what it was like, little moments of joy that come out of that. And so it was amazing. Every time we opened the door to have the community contribute, they did. So we had started with a program called 300 Photos in 30 Days. And my entire staff was like, we are never getting 300 photos. Not only did we get 300 photos in 30 days, we had to keep the program open for two more months in order to allow everybody to sort of contribute the number of documents that they wanted to um, contribute. And so interestingly enough, um, my head of PR, Nini Lustig, had said, we're gonna submit this for awards. And the first award we submitted it for was a global award where we were shortlisted for digital campaigns and we lost out to the, um, um, Art Institute and one other um, nationally recognized. Um, it was like one of the British Museum ones. Huh. And I thought, yeah, they had a million dollar budget and I spent <laughs> not a dime on my program. So I was very proud of that, that we had been shortlisted for a program that basically was just us going, hey, we need photos. Huh. That's really cool. Um, the History Center runs events from time to time, including, I know, the one called the Local Legends Series. Uh, what do you have coming up? We have the local legends coming up, and actually, invitations will be going out next week, so stay tuned. And we will have a um, story in Forest and Bluff, because it is embargoed right now who it is, and then that news will be out next week. So that's exciting. We, um, we have, like, sort of standard annualized events. That's one of them. We have Trivia Night, which is super <laughs> popular and freakishly competitive, as only Lake Forest <laughs> can make it. Um, so if you're interested in trivia, we make it all multiple choice, so you can just come in and randomly guess. 
Um, and it's all sorts of topics. It's not just local history. Um, and it's a chance to either show off your knowledge or feel completely humiliated by your lack of knowledge around whether or not kangaroos have bifurcated uteruses. Um, that was a question this year. So it will not be next year. So that's Luckily, not Luckily, that was multiple choice. <laughs> <laughs> And so with, um, we have about 40 programs a year that are all free to the public and they correspond to the exhibits that are up. Um, we usually take a break in August because everybody's on vacation. Um, programming will start up again in September and then we'll run through May. We have walking tours of all over Lake Forest. We have a bike tour coming up in the fall and when, then we have another tour of the Lasker Estate. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity to learn about local history through not just on-site events, but these walking tours, which are really popular. Also, if you're interested in volunteering, we need new volunteers to help lead tours. So I, I know the Local Legend Series is, is also a fundraiser. Is that your primary fundraising event, or do you have other things? We only have one fundraising event. We have an annual appeal that we do. Membership is a big part of our revenue stream, you know, supporting the museum through membership. During COVID, we made the decision to stop charging for any sort of lecture because it was going to be online, and we just didn't really want money to be a barrier for people to have some sort of experience. And what we found is that people are more generous when it's free, that they're willing to donate for something that they perceive as a service. And so we've kept it that way, and membership really helps us continue to keep these lectures free. We charge for the walking tours um, because of... Um, just the logistics for those, but we try as much as possible to make everything free to the public. How do you become a member of the uh, Oh, you can go Center. online to lflbhistory.org and sign up, and we have membership that starts at $50. That's great. Um, what's one of the most surprising or interesting things that you've learned about Lake Forest since joining the History Center? Um, yeah, it's a hard one to narrow down. Um we had done an exhibit uh, right before COVID um, based on Ginevra King, who was sure. the famous socialite that F. Scott Fitzgerald fell in love with and then, of course, wrote bitterly about in almost every book that he did <laughs> after that. And one of the things that we wanted to explore is what was her side of that story? Because we all know his, right? Which is she was this frivolous socialite and turned him down because he was wealthy. And so we really wanted to look at what was life like for a young adult woman in Lake Forest in 1920. And the answer is that they couldn't take money out of a bank unaccompanied by a man. They could not have a bank account or they could not shop without an account signed for by a man. When you married in 1920, you couldn't have a passport anymore because you had to be on your husband's passport like your children would have to be. Hmm. The limitations around what she could do based on who she married were really extreme, even for a woman of that kind of privilege. And so when her father had said to her, you know, basically, some whoever you're marrying is taking over my business is not going to be that dude, <laughs> he was not wrong because F. Scott Fitzgerald, not so good with the money. And she would have seen young women marry and have watched their husbands blow through their funds in a year and then leave them. And so even though I knew a lot about sort of women's history, I didn't realize how restrictive things had been. If you married somebody who was not an American, as a woman in 1920, you lost your American citizenship. And if you remarried, you could not get it back. 
Like, it was incredible the box women were in in that window of time. And Lake Forest was no exception. So I guess it's not specific to Lake Forest, but, but it played out in Lake Forest in a way hmm. that was really monumental for these women of privilege. So historically speaking, what do you think Lake Forest really should be best known for? You know, what was a focus for a long time of the historical society was sort of what I call the great man narrative, right? It's the McCormicks, it's mm -hmm. the Armors, it's the Swifts, it's, you know, the, uh, you know, tail on the lake. Exactly, the insole. It was the, these incredible titans of industry. But what's been interesting as we explore the garden project is that this decision around how to manage land has been sort of fundamental in Lake Forest's look and feel and then the influence that that has playing out across the country. You can look at some of the early garden club efforts in conservation and preservation. So the Lake Forest Garden Club in the early 1920s sets up a penalty of $100 in 1920s dollars <laughs> for harvesting wildflowers out of the prairie. They're serious about it, and they're going to make sure that those flowers remain. And they have this incredible voice, starting with Edith Farwell, a grand matron of um, Lake Forest, really focusing on what do we need to preserve and why. And so a lot of conservation movements that we think of today as being national, their voice begins here. And I don't think people know that. Oh, oh I, I think that's true. Um, so the museum turned 50 last year. What's going to happen 50 years from now with them? You know, it'll be interesting to see. I, you know, my goal is that the archive become entirely digitally structured so that not only do you have all the materials on site, but you also have digital files of all of them. Um, that's an arduous undertaking, but I think it's going to be critical again for access and for use. I think we'll continue to see the sort of evolution with digital technology within the museum space. But I think the idea of just telling local stories and looking at threads across history is just going to be something that we do for the next 50 years. How it's displayed might vary, but the topics and the reason for doing it, I hope will remain the same. And I'd also like to see a larger percentage of Lake Foresters be a member. <laughs> a very legitimate request. Carol, thanks so much for talking to us today. Uh, let's hope more people visit the center and learn about its history and maybe even add to it. Thank you. Lake Forest on Topic is a production of the Lake Forest for Transparency organization. To learn more or leave some feedback, go to lf4transparency.com. That's lf4transparency.com. This podcast is produced by Jennifer Karras and John Turkla. Sound engineering is by John Turkla. I'm Tim Finkin. Thanks for listening and have a great day.